morning. My name is Mark, and uh, I'm the pastor of Discipleship and Compassion here at Harbor. And I want to start off by asking you a question. I want you to think all the way back to the, the childhood playground, okay? Do you remember back in the playground when you used to line up along the fence, and then there was two captains standing there, and they would look along the line, and they would pick their various people they want on their team? Now, some of you, when you think of that uh, instance, those don't bring up very good memories. <laughs> and I was there sometimes, too. You're standing there, and you're seeing the kids around you getting picked before you're picked. But let's push away those, those kind of bad memories, and I want you to imagine a situation with me. You are the captain. You're standing there, and the people are spread out before you, and what are you doing? You're looking down the line, and you're trying to evaluate, who do I want on my team? You're maybe thinking of the different gifts or abilities or talents or skills. I want that kid. I want that one. That one's really fast. And you're inviting them and trying to get them on to your team. And what you're doing is comparing them. You're looking at them and you're like, these are the people I want on my team. After all, you're trying to create a team that's going to win, right? You, no one sets out to pick a team with the, with the goal of losing. They're trying to pick a team that would win. And I wonder, now this is purely speculation, we have no record of this, but I wonder if kind of that's what Paul might have been thinking as he entered into some of the cities where he went to start a church. As he enters into Philippi, as we'll see this morning, I wonder if he thought, you know what, God, I need a person like this. I need a person like this. Where are the influential people? Where are the Jewish men? Oh, God, if you would save them, hey, that would create such a, a great church. That would start the foundation of a church that would reach out into this area, especially as they've just entered into Europe. Uh, remember last week we looked and the Spirit kind of paused them and uh, uh, directed them not to go to the various areas where Paul and Silas were thinking they should go. The Spirit actually led them and said, go over to Europe into Macedonia. And so there they were in Philippi. And I wonder... Now, complete speculation, but I wonder if Paul thought that way, tried to strategize, tried to think of the people he would want on this new team, this new church. And I wonder that because you and I do the same thing, don't we? When, when we want to see God work in our family or in our neighborhood or in our workplace or our community, we kind of scan the people around us and we think, hey, that would be a really good person, God, to save. I mean, look at their gifts and abilities. And, and what we may do, well, we may not acknowledge it, but we may pass over people and think, oh, you know what, they may be too far gone or their situation's too much of a mess or, or God, you could never probably, I don't know if you could really save that person. And I wonder if Paul does that because we sometimes do that. We kind of evaluate people and think of the people that, hey, these are the people that, God, I think these are the people that you want on your team. It's interesting that we, we see God's mission, through, uh, mission to us through our own cultural and faulty and personal lenses. And I wonder, I wonder, what if God doesn't see it like we see it? What if God looks at people and doesn't see what we see but sees something else in them? I wonder if God's strategy in starting his church and seeing the gospel spread is a little different than our strategy or our understanding. And as we come to the passage this morning, that's what Paul and his companions realize. They realize that, that this is God's mission. This is not their mission. This is God's mission. 
It's not up to their clever strategies or picking the good team. It's about who God would engage with the gospel, save, and start his church. And so Paul and his companions learned this, that God sees things a little differently than how they may see it. And so we're in this next part of this journey in the book of Acts, and we see God establishing a church in Philippi. And we see from this passage we're looking at this morning that God uses or engages three unlikely individuals, according to human and cultural understandings, that he engages them with the gospel, that he saves, and he starts a church there. The first church, the first church in Europe. And we're introduced to these three people this morning. I invite you, if you haven't yet, to open up your Bibles or to turn them on and join me in Acts chapter 16. The passage was just read for us earlier, and as I've already said, here they are. They're entering into the city of Philippi. This is now Europe, and uh, they've entered into the city, which is the uh, Roman colony, leading city of Macedonia, and Philippi is in modern-day Greece. Our journey for this morning is this. We want to look at each of these three individuals. We want to see how the gospel impacted them. And then after that, what I want to do is, is help us to see three important lessons that we learn from their engagement in the city of Philippi. The first person, if you remember, that we were introduced to was a lady named Lydia. How did they meet Lydia? Well, Paul and Silas did what they always did when they entered into a city. They went to find the Jewish people. Philippi was a little different. There was no synagogue there. And that shows the fact that there was very little Jewish presence in that city. Uh, because a synagogue, for a synagogue to be started, it had to have 10 Jewish men in their households. And obviously, they weren't there. So there was no synagogue. And so what does Paul and Silas do? They head on down to the river. Because those who are worshipers of God, if there wasn't a synagogue, they would go to the, to the nearest body of water or stream to to read, to pray, to discuss. And what does Paul and his companions realize when they get down to the water? There's no man in sight. There's no Jewish man. There's no man seeking to worship God. There's no man seeking God. And I know for you and I in our culture, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But that's a significant note, especially in that day and time, especially in that patriarchal society. Paul goes and there is no man who are interested in worship God. And I don't know if, if Paul was kind of taken back or he was expecting something different or he's hoping for something different, but he was like, okay, Lord, what do, you, what do you bring for me here? And what does Paul and his companions see and engage with? A group of women who have met on the Sabbath day to, to read, to pray, and to discuss. And what does Paul do? He says, Lord, this is who you've given me. This is who I'm going to share with. And he sits down and talks with these ladies. And one of the women sitting there was a lady named Lydia of Thyatira. And she's obviously, she's not a Jew, but she's obviously a God-fearer. She had somehow heard of the Jewish God, and she sought him. She wanted to worship him. She was a seeker. But there's more, too. If you picked up, Lydia was a dealer of purple cloths, of purple garments, and if, if you were to put her in nowadays, she's kind of a businesswoman who owns like this high-end boutique that sells the, the luxury, luxurious, luxurious clothing that only the wealthy people could afford. And so this Lydia, she was a businesswoman. She was an entrepreneur. She was wealthy. 
And here is who they interact with. And, and as Paul is speaking to the women there, did you notice what happened in verse 14? Look at verse 14, and this is something incredible. It says this, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia's heart. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, did, was it Paul's fancy, eloquent, convincing, persuasive words that he was like, he captivated Lydia and made Lydia respond and open up? No, no, no. It was the Lord who opened up Lydia's heart and Lydia, yes, she was a seeker. Lydia, yes, she wanted to know God. Yes, she was eager, but God opened her heart and allowed her and caused her to respond to the good news of Jesus. And I love that. Was Paul expecting that? Probably not. Probably not. But look how God worked. And Lydia comes to faith, but what's more? There is more. What does Lydia do? She hears the message and she says, more people need to hear about this. So Lydia says, Paul, Silas, you need to come over to my house. And Paul and Silas and the companions go on over and, and they share the same message. And what we read in the passage is that her and her household were baptized. It's so cool. Her and her household were baptized. Not just her, but her household. And what we see here in Lydia's home is the first house of peace in Philippi. Here we see Lydia opening up her home. First, first she hears the message and she accepts it. Then she accepts the messengers, Paul and Silas. He, I love how she convinces them. If you judge me to be a believer, come and stay at my house. She accepts the messengers and she accepts the mission. She opens up her home and says, hey, this is going to be the home base for your ministry here in Philippi. And I love that. Maybe an unlikely start from what Paul and Silas may have pictured in their minds. But here is God starting his church in the city of Philippi. That's the first person we come in contact with. The second person we come in contact is with the slave girl. The slave girl. And this is a girl, probably age 10 to 14, who was not only enslaved physically, she was a property to her owners, but she was also enslaved by a spirit. Uh, more precisely in the, in the original language, the spirit of Python. And, and this spirit, this demon, was able to, to, to predict the future, or at least allow her to predict the future. And, and so her owners made a lot of money from her. They would sit her out and people would come to her and say, hey, what's in my future? And she would say something, the spirit would speak, and, and they would get money and her owners would make all this money. Here was a woman, a girl, who was controlled, used, and exploited. And Paul and Silas come in contact with her. And we're told that at the beginning, she just starts following them around. I mean, this is like a first century billboard. It's like a walking megaphone. And she would just follow behind Paul and Silas. And she shouted out for many days, she shouted out, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And we might think, Paul, that's pretty sweet, man. You just walk around and someone's falling behind you and they're just blaring things out and they're letting more people know about Jesus and how to be saved. And, and uh, Paul lets it happen for a few days, but then you notice that he gets annoyed with her, annoyed with the message that she's communicating. And the reason I think is this, is that the message of Jesus Christ and salvation only through him was getting muddled. 
You see, salvation with, from Jesus was getting linked and connected and declared from a spirit of python. And, and what was happening is there was almost a linking, almost as if, hey, maybe they're on the same team here. And, and, and that's what our enemy wants to do. He wants to muddle the gospel. He wants to take something that's far away from the gospel and maybe make it look like the gospel or connect it some way the gospel so that he kind of brings people's eyes off of Jesus and on to something else. He tries to confuse people, and Paul just had enough of it. I love it. He was annoyed. It was just, that was it. And so in verse 18, we read that Paul turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And what happened? At that moment, the Spirit left her. She was freed through the name of Jesus, through the power of Jesus. And at that moment, this slave girl who was controlled and used by the Spirit was now cleansed, freed from that bondage. At times, we may wonder of those around us, I wonder if that person's a little bit too far gone. Their situation, you know what, it's just a little bit too messy. Is it a little bit too difficult for God to deal with? We at times can be tempted to pass over someone, to walk by someone, to ignore someone. But what we hear, see in this story with Paul and the slave girl was an only God moment. No one is too far gone. Yes, her life was a mess, but it wasn't too messy for God. And God loved that young girl, and God freed her from that spirit. That's the second person we meet in the story. The third person we meet is the jailer. And, and how did he meet the jailer? Well, after Paul and Silas, uh, through the name of Jesus, called that spirit out of the slave girl, well, her, her owners weren't too happy. I mean, they had just lost their revenue source, and so they were a little ticked off. But Paul and Silas had, didn't do anything wrong. And so what he did, and he gathered others, and they drummed up these false charges and, and spoke these false charges to the authorities. And in turn, Paul and Silas were taken. They were, uh, they were beaten. They were lashed. And they were flogged. And then they were thrown into prison. And here enters the jailer. The jailer was a Roman military man. He was tough. He was cruel. We know this because after Paul and Silas enter into the prison, after being severely beaten, the jailer does nothing about it, although later in the story he does. He does nothing about it here, and he went beyond what he was even charged to do. If you look there in the story, he was charged to guard these men carefully. But what does he do? He takes the men, Paul and Silas, throws them in the inner prison, no light, Hardly any air movement, just a horrible center spot. And what's more, he puts their feet in stocks. He puts their feet, in a sense, their feet were spread apart in agonizing. It was, it was kind of a form of torture. So here this rough, tough military man does this unnecessary form of torture to these two guys. And, and you would look at this guy, and maybe Paul and Silas looked at this guy and thought, man, this guy is farthest away from you, Jesus, than we can think of. This guy would never be receptive to the gospel. He has no spiritual interest. In fact, he's hostile towards us. And there in the inner cell, we see this picture. Paul and Silas, and they have their bodies. There's gashes on their back. They're bruised and bloody and in pain. And what's their response? We know what we think the response most likely would be. But what's their response? And we see that they were praying 
and singing hymns. Here they were, filled with joy and peace, welling up in the midst of pain and suffering. Isn't that incredible? That God was, wor- God was working in them and giving them the joy and this peace. They considered it worthy to suffer for him. And it's not that, not that it was their intent, but as they're singing and as they're praying, what happened? Well, the other people in the jail started to hear. The other prisoners, even the jailer heard them singing and praying in the middle of the night. And what I find so fascinating there, in verse 25, it says that they listened to them. Now, that word listen is more than just, okay, the sound went into their ear and they heard it. No, this idea was an idea that they were amazed by it. They were riveted by it. They were fascinated by it. And there are those in the prison, the jailer included, hear these guys singing and praying with all that they've gone through that day, and they're just amazed. They're startled by it. And then not only that, not only does God fill their hearts with joy and peace, God does something incredible. He brings a violent earthquake that shook the very foundation of that prison. And it shook and it shook, and the Bible says that the doors opened, and the chains that were connected to the prisoners loosened from the wall. And imagine being the jailer at that moment. Your, your, is, your, your job is to guard these prisoners, to make sure they don't go anywhere. And, and you look, there's a shaking, and then the prison doors are open, and you notice that their chains have come loose from the wall. And you're thinking, okay, they're going to get out. I failed. This will cost me my life. And so what those, what's the Roman jailer do? He goes and pulls his sword ready to kill himself, because that's inevitably what would happen if the prisoners got out. And he's like, why, why even wait for that? Let's just take the shortcut. I'm going to kill myself now. But it's then that Paul and Silas yell out from the inner cell, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And Paul and Silas meet this jailer's cruel mistreatment with love and kindness the jailer is no doubt startled and thankful. He, he comes running in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he asks this great question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I mean, after all that he had heard for the singing and praying and, and maybe he heard of this slave girl that was falling around these men and calling out, this is the way to be saved. But regardless, the man drops on his knees and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, realizing that he was receiving forgiveness and kindness and compassion when he didn't deserve it at all. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And what we see in his words is that he doesn't quite fully understand it. Did you hear his question? What must I do to be saved? In other words, Paul, Silas, how do I earn this salvation? How, I, I've heard you talk about it. How do I earn it? How do I make it so I can have it? And that's our natural inclination, isn't it? We want to earn our salvation. We have a list of things we need to do or think we need to do to come to God. We need to do something. We need to accomplish something. Our life needs to look a certain way. We need to be worthy enough to be saved. But what's Paul and Silas' response? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that phrase, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, is the climax of these stories in Philippi. This was the message that Paul preached. This is the message he preached to Lydia around the water. This is the message he preached to the jailer. We are not saved because of what we do 
or what we have or who we are. We're not saved by our wealth. We're not saved by our influence. We're not saved because the good we have done. Just the same, we're not disqualified from being saved because of the wrong things that we have done or because our life is a mess or, or whatever we may be enslaved to. We're not saved by who we are or what we do. We are saved simply by believing in the Lord Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for you and I. I came across uh, how Charles Spurgeon, I don't know if you've ever heard of that name, some of you may, he's an old Baptist, a British Baptist preacher from the 19th century, and I came across how he came to be saved. He was about 16 or 17, and he was searching. He was trying to figure out this faith thing. He was trying to search for God, trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to be saved? And, and so he would go from church to church to church, try to figure this out. There was one day in January 1850, there was a huge snowstorm, and he could only make it to the small, simple church around the corner. And so that's, as far as he could get, he went in there and sat kind of at the back. And there was only 12 others who were able to show up in the midst of that snowstorm. And... The pastor never showed up. He couldn't even get there. And so the little congregation pointed to the shoemaker, a guy who had never preached before, never, didn't have anything prepared. He said to the, they said to the shoemaker, well, buddy, you're up. <laughs> we got to have someone speak and teach the word of God, so you're up. You're going to get up there. And so this man, this shoemaker, never preached, had nothing prepared, walked up on stage or at the front, and he opened up his Bible, and he read 40, uh, Isaiah 45, 22. In the old language, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the world. Let me say that again. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And so the, the man began. My dear friends, this is a simple text indeed. It says to be saved, we only need to look. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Anyone can look. You needn't have gone to college to look. You, you don't need to have a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. And then he continued, Ah, but the text says, look unto me. Look unto me, and many of us look unto ourselves. But there's no use looking to ourselves. The text says, look unto me. And Spurgeon writes that the man then opened up his arms and says, Look unto, um, look unto me, I am dropping drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rose again. Look unto me. I ascended to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the right hand of the Father. Look unto me. And after a couple minutes, the shoemaker kind of couldn't go any longer. That's all he had. And he lo as he looked out, he noticed Charles Spurgeon sitting in the back. And he, and he put his gaze upon Charles Sturgeon and this is what he says, young man, you look very miserable, <laughs> and you will always be miserable unless you obey my text. Young man, you have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon says the blow struck home, and he says, I saw it at once. I had been waiting to do 50 things to get to God, to find God, to be saved, but when I heard the word look... The cloud was gone, and I looked. What Spurgeon found out is what the jailer found out. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Simply look. 
And maybe you're like Charles Spurgeon and you're, you're searching after God and you're trying to figure this all out. Would you look, believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved? Maybe, maybe you're like the jailer and you're hardened and you're cynical and you're even, maybe even hostile towards the gospel. And maybe you're just watching because you're watching, but maybe there's a curiosity there. Hear those words, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's not what we do. It's not what we accomplish. We can't earn our salvation. It is simply looking. It's simply believing in what the Lord Jesus did on the cross and through his empty tomb, taking our sins upon him, paying for that, and rising again to give us new life. Would you believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved? And we look in on this jailer and we see this amazing transformation happen. The jailer then took them to his house. Just like Lydia did, the jailer said, oh my goodness, this is such good news. I need to bring you over to my house. And, and, and my family needs to hear this. And the Bible says that Paul and Silas spoke the message and, and met with the family. And the family listened to the good news. And they believed and they were baptized. There they, there they were. The jailer, this hardened, cruel soldier, this guard, seemingly hostile towards the gospel, there he is, transformed by the gospel. He and his household believed and were baptized, and now he is filled with joy. At, once he, at one point he was like, I don't care about you, you can rot, you can be in pain, but now he's washing their wounds. Now he's giving them food to eat. Only God, only God can break through to a person and open someone's heart up to respond to the message of Jesus. In this passage, we see three snapshots. We see three unlikely people that come in contact with the gospel. A, a, a prominent businesswoman, a slave girl, and a Gentile Roman jailer. And as we think of those three individuals, I want to share three lessons that we learn from this text. The first is this. God expands our understanding of who he wants to save. God expands our understanding of who he wants to save. Remember the three people in the story here? There's a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. I came across this as I was studying for this. There, there was a prayer that male Jews prayed back in the day. Paul would have known of this prayer. And the prayer went like this. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Now let me say right off the bat, I don't think this is a prayer to bash those three groups of people. But this was a prayer of Jewish men being thankful that, that they were able to fully participate in the community of faith. You see, at the temple, they would have these different courts. There would be the, the court for the, the Gentiles. There would be court for the women. And, and they couldn't go any farther. They were kind of restricted to coming into God's presence. And, but what I find fascinating about this passage is that as the gospel entered into Philippi, entered into Europe for the first time, the, Paul interacted with a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Different genders, different races, different socio socioeconomic standing, different levels of receptivity, but all significantly impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we at times can limit God, can't we? 
We pick the people we think that God, yeah, maybe you can work on that person, that person. Sometimes we skip over person. We think maybe, maybe they're exempt for some reason. Maybe they're too far. Could the gospel really transform them? But what we see here is everyone needs to hear the gospel. There are no limits, no barriers. And as we seek to follow Jesus and to share him, what's God going to do? He's going to expand our understanding of who he wants to save and to work through. He will break down our cultural, our ethnic, our social economic boundaries that we place up, our aversions to people that we come up to in our own mind. He breaks those down. And when he does, we in turn break in to the mind and the heart of the living God, the living God who created every single human being, a living God who loves every single one of them, a living God who wants each of them to hear of the good news of his son, Jesus. And so just like when we're picking a team along the fence, are you ignoring someone? As you walk down the street, as you walk in the store, as you engage with your neighbor, are you ignoring someone, thinking, oh, maybe they're too far? Maybe God wouldn't work in them. They, they kind of fit outside of my understanding of who would be a Christian. Would you share the gospel with whoever God brings in your, in your life? And would you see him expand your understanding of who he wants to save? Secondly, God is the one who transforms lives, and he does it through us. In each of these instances, it's God who does the work of salvation, right? The, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond. It was in Jesus' name and the power of Jesus that the slave girl was freed from the Spirit. The Lord, through the testimony of Paul and Silas in the prison, as well as the earthquake, enabled that or caused the jailer to respond. God is undoubtedly the one who initiates faith, who opens hearts up to respond to the good news of Jesus. But at sometimes, sometimes we think that that's our role. <laughs> Sometimes we think that we're the one who needs to cause people to open up and to respond to the gospel. And, and when that happens, we place a very heavy burden upon ourselves. We, we, we think that, hey, it, it depends on what we say and what we do. And if they don't turn and trust in Jesus, then we've done something wrong. We've failed. We've screwed up. But what we see here and what we see, see through, the, through, the, through the book of Acts is that God is the one who opens hearts to respond. Your and I job, my job and your job is to simply share the good news of Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And I know sometimes we might think of, okay, if God, if you're the one who opens up hearts, then, then I can just sit back. I don't, really don't need to do anything. We might think, okay, God, you can make that happen. But did you notice, and I love this, did you notice that God works through his people to share the gospel and see other lives transformed? He chooses to work through his people to see others hear the gospel and to respond. And he does that through Paul and Silas. And, and you might be saying, okay, Mark, that's Paul and Silas and Timothy. That's, that's, that's not me. I'm just an ordinary person. Well, did you notice it in the story? Yes, Paul and si sorry, yes, God worked through Paul and Silas, but he also worked through some other people. Did you notice it? There's Lydia and the jailer. What did they do? Here they are, they heard the gospel the first time, they believed, and what did they do? You gotta come over to my house. We gotta share this good news. We gotta share this with the people in my life who are surrounding me. And what we see is God didn't just work through Paul and Silas. He worked through Lydia and the jailer into their households to see others come to faith 
and be baptized, to hear the good news of Jesus. And that's what God does. He chooses to work through you and I. And that's astonishing because you and I, I know I am. I'm weak. (laughs) I'm imperfect. I'm flawed. I'm not always reliable. And yet God has this mission to, to, to spread the gospel, to see churches start, and he chooses to do that through you and through I. And let me say what a privilege it is to be used by God in someone's life. There is no better experience than sitting there when someone turns and trusts in Jesus. There's such a privilege to be a part of what God is doing in someone's life. And I pray, Harbor, that each of us would have an opportunity at least once, maybe, maybe once this next year, that we would experience that, that we would be a part of sharing the gospel, that we would see someone turn and trust, and we would be involved in their baptism. How amazing would that be, Harper? Would we see that God is one who transforms lives, and he does it through you and through I. And there, the third part I want to bring to our attention is this. The gospel is the strongest unifying factor, power. The gospel is the strongest unifying pastor. Right there at the end of the passage in verse 40, I don't know if you picked up on this, but this is what happens right at the end. After that, Paul and Silas, they came out of prison, and where did they go? They went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. It's almost like this little add-on you kind of miss, but what's happening there? What's, what's gathering there? Yes, it's the brothers and sisters. Is that just Lydia's brothers and sisters or her household? No, that's more than just her household. There who are gathered there are the brothers and sisters who have believed in the Lord Jesus and have been saved. And what we see there in Lydia's house is the very first church in Europe. And God uses these three unlikely people. God uses his gospel to start a church in an unreached land, and that is Lydia's home, her house church, where, the, where the Paul and Silas come and encourage them. And how, how I wish I could be able to look through the window of her house that day. How great would that be? Looking through the window and I would see Lydia there and she went and opened the door and Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke come into the, her house. And there in her house, I look over to one spot and I see Lydia's household gathered there and sitting down around Paul and Silas. And I shift my gaze over a little bit and presumably I see the slave girl there in her right mind being freed from the spirit. And you shift over a little bit more and you see the jailer and his wife and his family and his household. And as you look around the room, I presumably you see people who, who, who are they? Who are they? And they are ones that the gospel have also impacted. And here is the gathered church, the very first gathered church in Europe. And what a beautiful picture, because what it is, is a picture of the unifying power of the gospel. As you look out over that room, you see different genders, you see different ethnics, different races, different cultures, different socioeconomic. And what are they doing? They're meeting together to worship, to be encouraged, to serve Jesus, to be the first church there in Philippi. I remember when I was planting, a part of planting Lightweight Church in the east end of Hamilton in Stony Creek, and uh, in the summers we wanted to save money on rent. Uh, rent was very expensive at the school. So we thought, you know, why don't we just meet out in the field some Sundays in the summer, 
and uh, kind of have a low-key service. We'd play some music, sing some songs. We'd have a little devotional, and uh, we'd have like a little potluck. We'd have some food together. We'd bring out the barbecue. Well, if you were to stand on that field at that point um, and look over, it was kind of the school and the rec center and this big field, massive field all the way around. And if you were to look out over that field, you would see various groups. You would look over by the park benches there and you see the Punjabi men, the older men, and they'd be sitting there discussing and talking. You'd look over here and you'd see the Cambodians and, and they would be bringing out a whole feast, a whole lots of food that I just wanted to go over and eat with them, but I felt too scared to do that. And then you'd see the Cambodian men a little bit farther over doing some gambling thing on the ground. And as you looked around the field, you saw different ethnic groups congregated with themselves and even age groups as well. Well, there we were having our little service, and we were only about 20, 30 people, not very big at all, but if you were to look in on our group, you would have seen Augustine, uh, uh, a Zimbabwean man. You would have seen Asav and his family, an extended family from Pakistan. You would have seen Hector and Marina and, and their family and Jay and Yakonda from South America. And there we were gathered together. We had just finished singing. We had had a little devotional. We were just about to have some food. And there's this boy that starts walking past us. And it's a boy we had gotten to know over the last little bit. And the boy kind of walked up to us just to say hi and be kind. But you could tell there was this puzzled look on his face. And this is one of the questions he asked me. Why are you all together? <laughs> Why are you all together? In other words, I look at you and you look all so different. You don't look the same, and yet why are you together? You see, what he noticed is that every other group around that field was segregated, was split up. They didn't mesh, they didn't mingle, but here they saw, he saw a little group of people who looked so diverse, and yet they were together. And, and he was puzzled, he didn't quite understand it, but what he saw, what he witnessed, was the power, the unifying power of the gospel. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Galatians. So in Christ, you are a child of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For all are one in Christ. For you are all one in Christ. And that's what we see in Philippi. We see three unlikely individuals that look so radically different, and yet we see the gospel establish a church in Europe, the very first church in Lydia's home, and this is the type of church that God wants to continue to grow and start everywhere. A church that responds to the gospel, a church that is unified, a church that glorifies God and puts the gospel on display and as we look into this beginning church in Philippi, we see only God. This is an only God situation. God was forming his team, maybe an unlikely team, according to our cultural or personal understandings, but his team, a new church, a new church that would thrive and grow, a new church that would impact many lives and see the gospel continue to spread in Europe. And Harbor, that's what we want to see happen through us as well, don't we? We want to experience those only God moments. We want to see him do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine through us. 
We want him to expand our minds of who he wants to save. We want to be obedient and say, God, you want to, you want to open up hearts and respond. We're going to go out and share that. And that's not our responsibility to make them turn, but we're going to go out and share. And Lord, we trust that you would open up those hearts. And as they do, whoever they are, wherever they've been, wherever they're from, whatever their life looks like, we're going to incorporate them. We are part of the church. We are one in Christ. And Harbor, that's the church we want to see, not for us. Not to toot our own horns or to say, hey, look how great we are. Or look what God's doing. It's, well, it is. What, look what God's doing. It's not us. It's him for his honor and for his glory immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we want to thank you for salvation. We want to thank you for saving us by your grace. Lord, uh, we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, and yet you opened our hearts at one point and allowed us to respond to the good news of Jesus. And Lord, we confess that, that we sometimes limit those around us from, from us sharing it with those around us. Lord, we ask that you expand our understanding, that we wouldn't write people off, that you would expand our understanding of, of who you want to save. God, that you would work through us would you give us the courage to speak? Would you give us the confidence? Would you give us the love and compassion to share with, with those around us? And, and would you unify us as a church? Would we see our diversity growing? Would we be united in you, Jesus? And may you do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And to you be honor and glory through this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, to close off this morning, I have an assignment for you. It's a quick, easy assignment. It's this. Keep your eyes open. Ask God, who would you like me to engage with today? Would you wake up each morning? God, who would you want me to engage in? Don't write anyone off. Open your eyes and be ready to engage with someone who God has placed in your life. They might not look like the person you're expecting or the person that you may want. Whoever God brings in your life, would you seek to, to share the good news of Jesus and enter into spiritual conversations? And with that, Harbor, we are sent.